Father, thank you so very much for your word and the opportunity that we have to study your word. Thank you for these ladies and their faithfulness to stay, um, just to persevere through this study. And God, it's been so rich and so good just to see uh, your son even portrayed in the Old Testament and your glory and what our future is going to be like, all portrayed in the Old Testament. And Lord, more than anything, it's your love for us and your desire to be with your your creation um, that's us. And so, Father, I pray that every woman here that comes and listens to the teachings and finishes this study, Lord, would just really feel your presence in their life and that they would know that you love them and want and desire to spend time with them. So, Father, I pray for Alicia this morning now as she comes to bring us um, your message. I pray that you'll just speak through her, help her to uh, really have a clear mind as she goes through all the things that we've studied this week. And just thank you for her and her diligence to, to know more about you and to teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. How's this sound? Are we good? Okay. Well, I am so excited about this lesson. I've been thinking about it for quite a while, and um, the Lord has really put a lot on my heart um, and Preston, I think, on exactly what we need to hear this morning. I'm really praying for that um, for us. I got an email from my four-year-old son's t-ball coach a couple days ago, and they named the team the Super Friends. And I'm like, that's pretty cute. I like that. Uh, but my husband just kind of rolled his eye and shook his head. He's like, really, the Super Friends? I mean, like, can't we be like the Tigers or the Bears? Something a little more fierce. Um, but y'all are, you are my Super Friends. You are my Super Sisters. And I really mean that. I am so excited. And nothing stirs my heart. I mean, makes me like giddy excited than like being able to spend time with y'all and talk about the Lord and his word. And so this is a huge honor to be able to be here this morning and to be able to open God's word with you. And so I'm going to start us out with some prayer. Father, it is a huge privilege to be in your presence, God. May I never, may we never take that for granted, Lord. You are so worthy And you are so holy, and you are so good and righteous, and yet, Lord, you want to dwell with us, God. I can't get over that. Lord, I just pray right now that you would give us an undivided heart, Lord, that all these distractions that we come in with, Lord, that weigh on us, that compete for attention in our mind, Lord, that they would just go away so that we can just be super sensitive, Lord, to your Holy Spirit this morning. Because, Lord, this is what matters. And so, God, I pray for that for each of us this morning as we open up your word and we dive in deep, Lord. Speak to us richly, and I pray all this in your name. Amen. Okay, open with with me to Exodus 30 and 31. This is where our passages are this morning. This section of the scripture talks about different offerings and different sacrifices that God set up for his people and for the priests. And it's a really unique section. I think it really applies to us as well. But before we get started, I want us to understand really what God was doing when he was asking his people to sacrifice and to set up offerings. Because I ran across a verse, a Hosea 6.6. In a Hosea 6.6, it says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Now, this is interesting, and I think it's a little confusing because when I first read it, I thought, then why in the world did God set up this tabernacle and enforce all of these offerings before him if what he really doesn't desire is burnt offerings and sacrifice? And so I think it's important that we understand 
that all these things that we're reading and the tabernacle and how it was supposed to be built and function was really just an outward reflection or manifestation of what he was wanting to happen within the hearts of his people. And Jesus himself referred to Hosea when he was talking to the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were a group of people that were very religious, and these things were very important to them, and they were, they were really upset that Jesus was out there calling out to the sinners, to the tax collectors, to the, to the prostitutes, and he's like, don't you understand this is not according to the law? Jesus, what are you doing? And Jesus refers to Hosea 6.6, 6, and he says, listen, go and think about this, Pharisees. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So he's saying, you are missing the heart of everything that I am doing in the law and everything I asked you to do. That was just the outward reflection of what I wanted happening in your heart, a heart of steadfast love, which is what mercy means, a heart of obedience that comes from that. And that, sisters, is exactly what he wants for us as well. Turn with me, if you will, please, to Romans chapter 12, 1 through 2. Now, Romans is after the Gospels in the New Testament and after the book of Acts. And I promise we'll get back to Exodus 30. Okay. Romans 12, 1 through 2. I appeal to you, therefore, sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, I underlined a couple words here, living sacrifice. So Paul is basically telling the Romans, which are the New Testament believers like you and I, that what, I'm, what God is requiring of you is a living sacrifice. It's not a dead sacrifice. Now, this is a good thing, right? Because if he had asked us to, to sacrifice our bodies on the burnt, off, on the burnt altar, that, that doesn't sound too great, does it? But he's saying, what I want you to do is sacrifice your body as a living sacrifice. So an ongoing, as we live our life, daily offering of ourself to the Lord. Now, this is our spiritual worship. The Greek word for worship here actually means worship according to the Levitical law. Interesting. Worship according to the Levitical law. So he's saying your worship, like I asked the people and the priests in the day of Exodus, is exactly the same thing that I was asking them. I was asking them for their hearts. I was asking them for their obedience. It wasn't about doing the law. It was about loving me. And I'm asking you, children of God, believers, to do the same thing. This is your spiritual worship. Okay. So now that we have this big, long introduction, let's get into Exodus 30. Now, as you walk through Exodus 30 and 31, you see different sectionings of what could be offerings before the Lord. And I've divided them up into time, talent, treasure. You might have heard those, those words before. And then the altar of incense, which is where we're going to spend a lot of time this morning. So time. Time is an offering that God required of the people, and I call it the Sabbath sign. And we're going to go through this briefly, but basically a sign kind of confirmed or ratified a covenant for a, a group of people. So the sign for the Noahic covenant was the rainbow, right, for, with Noah, and the Abrahamic covenant, the sign was circumcision. Now, you remember Moses, we talked about this. He, did, he almost was put to death because he did not circumcise. Same thing here. There is a death penalty if the Sabbath was not kept. And this is the Mosaic covenant sign. So this is a really big deal. 
Now, what he was asking the people to do was to take the time away where they wouldn't be doing their work, they wouldn't be doing their service to the Lord, even doing wonderful things like building the tabernacle. He's saying, you need to stop doing what you're doing, even the good things, to take time away to be with me and to trust in my provision for you. And he did the same thing with the people. If you remember the manna that he provided for them for six days, and on the seventh day, he said the same thing. You're going to have to trust me on this. Usually the manna will spoil, but on the seventh day, it will carry over and you will have enough. Now, for me, I'm a Martha personality, not a Mary personality. And so taking that time to pause and go, I don't need to do this. I need to trust the Lord with my time is, a, is an offering before the Lord. It's a living sacrifice to daily submit to that and say, Lord, you asked me to take time away to be with you even Jesus did this. He, he withdrew in solitude before the Lord so he could pour back out. How much more should we do that? And time in the morning to get up and spend time with the Lord. There's times that I'm like, well, I need my rest, God. But to trust the Lord enough to go, I can give you rest, sweet sister. Trust me on that. This is a living sacrifice to get up and to spend time with me. And then we move into talent. And we see the two gifted men, Bezalel and Aholiab. I practiced that. Those are, those are crazy names, you know? Like, why in, the, why in the Old Testament were names like that? I mean, they had to have shortened them, I think, you know, because otherwise, how do you say that? Bezzy and Oho? I don't know. Todd and his ephod. I, <laughs> he probably has no idea we have this running joke in women's Bible study about Todd and his ephod. Anyway, so Bezalel and Aholiab were these gifted men that God actually anointed with his Holy Spirit to perform the tasks that needed to build the tabernacle and to design amazing work. And they, they were also fully capable uh, in and of themselves. So they had a passion and a gifting for this, and then his Holy Spirit came, so they were fully equipped to do his work. Now, for us, I would encourage you all to, to really be intentional about knowing what gifting you have. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. Know what spiritual gifting you have. And then seek the Lord to go, how can I serve you in this? Because they did this not for their own glory, but for the glory of God and the building up of his kingdom. And so it's important for us that as a living sacrifice and an offering, that we also are intentional about using our gifting for him and encouraging our kids and our grandkids to the same thing. We can do things with excellence, ladies. These men did things with excellence for the Lord. And then we go to the offering of treasure. Now, this was the census tax. And the census tax was a mandatory tax, half a shekel, that these people would need to bring to help maintain the tabernacle and the functioning. And it was given, the people would have to give this amount at the time a census was taken. And a census is an official count of a population. And by the time Jesus came along, this was a yearly temple tax. Now, this is, these are the type of giving that's not real glamorous or fun or exciting. But God is asking his people to do these things because it's important. And how often do I kind of begrudgingly do that? But it's important for the maintenance of our, of our church and the people that are serving us that we, that we give of ourselves in that way too. And so this tax, half a shekel, would have been about $575. And it was the price of a life. It was the ransom price, the atonement for a life. And so it was the same regardless if you were wealthy, rich, or poor. The price of a life is the same. And so this is our offering before the Lord. When we're able to do these things, and not just the, the new building or the new mission strip or the things that might sound exciting, but actually saying, Lord, I'm willing to do the mundane for you because it's important. And then the offering that we're going to talk about next, we're going to go to the golden altar of incense. Now, this is what I'm really excited about. Okay, so if you guys remember, we had the outer court that Sue talked about, and then inside the outer court, we had the inner court. So the outer court had the bronze altar, 
and the bronze laver or the basin that had the water inside of it. They were made of bronze from the mirrors of the Egyptian women. And they weren't as beautiful as what was in the inner court where everything was made of gold. Because the closer you get to God, the more precious things become. And in the outer court, you had this huge altar to sacrifice the offerings. And then the priests would come over, and then they would cleanse themselves in the water basin. And they would have to do this, or they would die. And as I thought about that, I'm thinking, how important is it, before we come into the inner sanctuary and meet with the Lord, that I am intentional about being transparent before him, that I confess of my sins, that I repent before him, that I come clean before him. So I'm not bringing all that into the precious inner court, the holy place of the Lord. And the priests would have to do this or they would die. And they would go into the inner court then to tend to the golden altar of incense, the table of showbread, which actually was on this side, and then the golden lampstand that Sue talked about, was, which was actually right here, and it was a lot bigger than the one I have right here. It actually was the source of light for that room. So it was probably pretty significantly big. And they would come in, and they would drop the incense in, and it would rise up before the Lord. And we're in the holy place, by the way. The veil is right here. This apparatus, the golden altar of incense, is the closest thing to the holy of holies, without being in the Holy of Holies. It's almost like it's included in it, but it's on the opposite side of the veil. Inside the veil was the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, the presence of God. So when they would light this incense before the Lord, it's like it would rise up above the veil into the most holy place. Now, what what does the incense stand for? Well, I think we can say with a lot of confidence that it stands for prayer. Let's look at Psalms 141, 1 through 2. O Lord, I call upon you. Hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting of hands as the evening sacrifice. Now the priest, and this wasn't the, the high priest, This was just the priest, and there was many of these, by the way. In fact, in the time of Jesus, where Zechariah and Elizabeth are talked about in Luke 1, Zechariah was one of the the priests, there was many, 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 many priests. So this might have been a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to go inside into the holy place. Not the most holy place where the great high priest would go on the Day of Atonement one time a year. But every morning and every evening, they would offer this sacrifice on the bronze altar. And then they would go into the holy place and they, they would do what I told you. They would tend to the altar of incense and the golden lampstand. And then they would pray before the Lord. And the people would pray outside at that time too. In Revelations 5, 6 through 8, John looks up into heaven. Now, Revelation's the very end of your Bible. If you want to turn there, that would be great. But John looks up into heaven, and he sees something. And we need to remember that the actual tabernacle was built as a blueprint of the heavenly reality of what really exists up in heaven. And John takes a look at it, and he sees this. So when he told these gifted men, you need to build it this way, and they ha- it had to be exact in its specifications, there was a reason for that. Because he probably could have told them, hey, guys, you're really gifted. Go do what you want. Make it great. But he said, no, this is exactly how it's supposed to look because this is the way it looks in heaven. This is the reality. And so John looks up, Revelations 5, 6 through 8, and this is what it says. And standing between the throne... And the four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Sound familiar? Jesus Christ. And seven horns, and with seven eyes, and with, which are the spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, 
which are the prayers of the saints. Now, if you guys can get a picture for this, they had a harp in one hand, which is like the, the praise and worship in song. And then they had these golden bowls full of incense, which John said are the prayers of the saints. Now, what are the saints? The saints aren't necessarily the pope or, or the church leaders or the elders or the ministers. It's you and I. The New Testament believers, we are the saints. And so what he's saying is these bulls are full of all those prayers, all the millions and billions of prayers through the saints through all, all time and eternity. And, and they're being kept here with me as instance. And then later on in Revelations, if you turn a couple chapters to your right, Revelations 8, 2 through 5 says, Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets are given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, and flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Whoa! Powerful prayers. And, and if you don't know what a censer is, this is like what a censer would have been like. And what, what the priest would do, and it probably had a handle on it so they could actually carry it, but they took coals from the bronze altar, and that was really important. And that was the fire that they would use to put in the censer, bring it into the holy place, and then put the powdered incense on top of it. And those coals, that fire, is what allowed the incense to rise. And it says the angels took the coals and put it on the censer just like what we are seeing is what's happening with the priests as well. Now, why those coals? Well, let's think about this. The coals from the altar, the bronze altar, were actually coals that represent what? The sacrifice that was made for the people. The atoning sacrifice. And so if we can get a picture here, our prayers are built on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ himself and him alone. Otherwise, it is unauthorized, strange fire before the Lord. They were to use no other coal, no other fire. In fact, Aaron himself, his sons, did that and died. It was that important. So that brings us to our next point. Not only is it a symbol of prayer, but it's a symbol of intercessory prayer. Now, what does intercessory mean or interceding? Because that's kind of a big word, but it's an important word. It means praying on behalf of someone else. Now, if, if Jesus himself was the mediator, the great high priest that would go in once a year on the Day of Atonement to make atonement for the people in the most holy place, then he himself is represented as our mediator, as our intercessor. Our prayers are built on the coals of the sacrifice and atoning work of Jesus Christ. It says in Romans 5, 8 that Christ died to save us. But Hebrews 7.25 says, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. You see, Jesus died on the cross, and his job now is he is sitting there next to God, the Father, on the throne, interceding for us in our prayers. How amazing is that? So what about for us? We don't have the tabernacle or the temple. And so how does that look for us in our life in fellowship with him? Because if you can remember, the whole point of this tabernacle is what? God wanting fellowship with his people. God wanting to dwell and commune with his people. And he still wants that for us today. 
And so if you go back to John 4, Jesus is going to talk to the Samaritan woman. And if you remember the story, John 4, 21 through 24, the Samaritan woman's talking to him, and Jesus is saying, one day you will not worship me on this mountain, because the Samaritan worshiped on a mountain. And then one day the Jews will not worship in Jerusalem at the temple. He's saying, you will worship me in spirit and in truth. In spirit and in truth. And what was, what was, God, what was Jesus trying to tell her at this point? Well, he was trying to say, and, and this is actually, I looked, I looked into this a little bit more. It's not saying there's two different ways of worship in spirit and truth. There's one idea here. And the Greek actual word translation is truly spiritual. And so what he's trying to say is that your worship to me, your prayer and communication to me is becoming from the heart and the spirit of the worshiper to God who also is spirit. And it's going to be based on God and scripture, and it's scripture-centered. It's the word-centered, truly spiritual. It will not be held to a certain location. It will transcend place and time and this is an amazing thing for us because what he what he's trying to say is you can worship me wherever whenever you want as often as you want and this is what i'm dying for this is what i'm dying for and now we can confidently approach the throne because Jesus Christ tore it from top to bottom. So now when our prayers go up, they're going directly to the throne of God. Ladies, this is amazing. What a privilege. It's the highest privilege of our life. And Christ died to make it happen My daughter, Sage, the other day I was talking to her. and I don't know if you play these games with your kids, but she was like, Mom, if you could be, have any superpower, what would it be? She goes, I'd want to fly or be invisible. And at the moment, it was like 6 o'clock at night. Everybody was hungry and tired. And I'm like, I wish I could just snap my fingers and food would be on the table whenever I want. Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> um, and I said, but you know what, Sage? I'm like, and my head's been here in, in Exodus 30. But I said, we have an amazing superpower. And that really is what it is, ladies. When we go before the throne, God hears us. Because Jesus is interceding for us. Because he is mediating for us. And he hears our prayers. And he answers us. And he communes and fellowships with us. Ladies, this is a superpower. It truly is Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You see, these people were fearful of drawing near to God, weren't they? On the mountain, in the tabernacle, there was all these things they had to do. And he's saying, you can now, the, the author of Hebrews is basically saying, you can be confident, you can come boldly. This is huge. So then we walk into the holy place and we see the altar of incense and we also see the golden lampstand and we get this picture of the golden lampstand being what Sue had taught us a couple weeks ago, Jesus Christ himself, the word, right? The light of the world. So we see a picture of the word being illuminated by the Holy Spirit so we have eyes to see what God is teaching us in his word. And then we see the, the prayers of the saints. So we see this beautiful relationship of prayer and reading the Bible and the illumination by the Holy Spirit so that we can commune with God the Father on the throne. Do you guys see this picture of the Trinity working together in the holy place? Isn't this neat? Psalms 119.18 says, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. You see, God, Jesus himself as the word, and the illumination by the Holy Spirit, 
and then the incense representing the prayers of the saints. Jesus is the intercession for us and the Holy Spirit within us. Intercession, illumination, incense, and light. You see this idea of reading and pleading. And this is why I like being able to come before the Lord, not only in prayer, asking him to open up my eyes, but then going to scripture at the same time and then finishing with prayer. I think it's this conversation that we're having. It's this communication that we're having with the Lord, this fellowship. You see, we pray to the Father through the Son and by the power of of the Holy Spirit. To the Father, through the Son, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. As I was prepping to teach on prayer, I was really um, convicted of my prayerlessness. I mean, I love to read the Word. I love attaining knowledge and it, it deepens my thirst for him it really does but prayer is hard for me and it is a sin in fact in first samuel twelve twenty three, it says moreover as for me and this is samuel the prophet talking far be it from me that i should sin against the lord by ceasing to pray for you and i thought about that and that hit really deep And why would that be a a sin before the Lord? And I thought about that. And it's hard for me. And I tell my kids often some of the most difficult things in life are some of the best things. I can think of nothing great that is also easy. So therefore, prayer must be one of the hardest things in the world. Take heart, sweet sisters. Because if it's worth it, then the enemy's probably going to fight against it. And lack of prayer causes four things, probably more than four, but I'm, I'm pulling out four things. Number one, it causes us to be weaker when we're tempted. And Jesus says this, and he's talking to his disciples in Mark 14, 38. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Where do you think our scheming enemy is most likely to attack us? Where we're most effective. There's nothing Satan wants more than for me to stop praying and for y'all to stop praying. Ephesians 6 talks about the armor of God and putting on the armor of God. And so we see the helmet of salvation and the shield of faith and the belt of truth. And at the very end, we often forget this, but he wraps it all up in verse 18. And he says, but pray at all times in the spirit. It's almost like it's the summation of it all. And when I say in the spirit, what I'm saying is that with the enabling or the help of the Holy Spirit. But he's saying prayer is almost like this is like this is what it's rising up to. This is the the climax of what you're supposed to do to protect yourself and to fight against the enemy. You see, I am weaker when I am tempted and I have to ask myself, am I fighting back with prayer? You see, things happen in the unseen world when I pray. I just don't have eyes to see it yet. And number two, a lack of prayer causes us to lose the connection to our power source. My boys were riding on a four-wheeler a couple months ago. My oldest was on it. My youngest decided he wanted to get on it, and so he was running after him, and he jumped on, and they flipped it. (laughs) And fortunately, they were okay, but the four-wheeler wasn't. (laughs) And so... I ran up to it. Everything was like pretty much a yard sale in our, in our backyard, and we kind of put everything back together. And when I had an electrician out of the house, I said, can you come take a look at my four-wheeler and see if it's still working? And he said, well, all the parts are here, but it just depends if, if the connection will work. And so he took the wires with the right tools so he wouldn't electrocute himself, and he put them together. And he said, we'll see if the, the fuse is blown. We'll see if the, the little engine, the motor is still working. So he put it together, and what do you know? We put the gas on, and vroom, it took off. 
And I think that's kind of like us. If we're a believer in Jesus Christ, we have all the parts there. We have access to the Father. We have the Word of God. We have the Holy Spirit in us. But if we are not flipping that switch to turn the electricity on, if we're not making the connection, we do not have the power working. And number three, lack of prayer causes anxiety. And this is a big one for me. I tend to be a worrier. And I've noticed a trend. I worry the most when I pray the least. It's true. Philippians 4, 6 through 7 says, you guys are probably familiar with this verse, don't be, don't be anxious for anything, but pray about everything. This is the antidote to worry. It is the anti-anxiety pill, prayer. And when we look at the incense, and the incense is rising up to God, the prayers are rising up to God, it's like our head is now focused on God the Father sitting on his throne and no longer on us. And our worry. And number four, it causes hearing loss. And what do I mean by that? A lack of prayer closes our ears to God. See, it's not just God hearing me in my prayer to him and my supplications to him. It's about me hearing God. It's not just God hearing me, but it's, it's me hearing God. You see, he changes the way we view him. He changes our desires, and then he changes us. He gradually clears our vision when we go into the inner sanctuary, when we get in his word, when his Holy Spirit enlightens us to the truth that we are reading and we pray before him. It's like he's fine-tuning us to him. And that's where, the, that's, where, that's where the power is, you guys. It's not about asking him for something in our prayer and waiting for him to answer us. Sometimes the answer is prayer in and of itself. You see, prayer is not just a means to an end. It is the end. So James, the brother of John, and I'm, I'm guessing he knew Jesus pretty well. He said, the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And another translation says, and this is James 5.16, the prayer of a righteous person has much power as it is working. What is effectual prayer? What does effectual mean, really? Effectual means a prayer that works. If something is effectual, it's successful. And don't we all want effectual prayer or prayer that works for us? Well, Jesus knew what effectual prayer was. In fact, the author of Hebrews 5-7 says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Can you guys feel, feel the rawness that he probably had to him who was able to save him from death? And he was heard because of his reverence. So what does reverence mean? I mean, I want to know this because I want effectual prayer that works, right? So what is reverence? Reverence in the Greek is a word that I can't pronounce, but it means fear in the presence of God. And remember we talked about what fear of God is and how we fear God a few months ago? Well, that's when we, we learn what his word says and we learn more about him then we learn how to fear him, and that's when our prayers become more effective. You see how it all works together? The knowledge of him. Number one, effectual prayer is appropriate understanding of God and knowledge of his word. So the more we read, the more we meditate on him and his word, memorize his word, the more effective our prayers will become. How many of y'all are familiar with um, the great theologian Martin Luther? Okay, well, he wrote an essay on prayer. And I'm going to pay attention to this because the man was a prayer warrior. I mean, he prayed three hours a day. Amazing. Amazing. And so he wrote about prayer. He said, this is my routine. And, and this by no means is, is necessarily biblical, but it's great to kind of get in the mind of someone that does it well. And so he would, 
have a routine of praying in the morning and the evening. Interesting, the morning and evening sacrifice. And so he would take that time to come before the Lord, and he would ask the Lord to open up his eyes, first and foremost. And then he would get in the Word, and he would meditate on the Word. And when I say meditate, I'm not saying that he said a word over and over again in some weird position. No, he actually took the Word, and then he would think about the context of it. He would, he would bring it before the Lord, and he would say, how does this apply to me? How did it apply to them? And then he would send up prayers in the midst of it. So thank you, Lord, for this. And I appeal to, to you, Lord, on behalf of this with, with whatever scripture he was reading. So it was, a, it was an ongoing conversation he would have. And then it was like he warmed up his heart to be able to pray through the Lord's prayer. And he would do that, the morning and evening time devotions for him. Now, he wouldn't just say the Lord's prayer, but he would, he would change it to whatever was going on in the circumstances of his life. But it would be according to the Lord's prayer. And then he would go into just, just a free prayer himself. And this was, his, this was his routine, morning and evening. Now, this brings us to point number two. Effectual prayer is according to his will. You see, when Martin Luther would, would pray with scripture in mind, he was learning the will of God, wasn't he? He conforms our will to his as we pray. And then with the enabling and help of the Holy Spirit and with truth, God will help us understand how we are to pray and how we are to pray according to his will. 1 John 5, 14 through 15 says, And this is the confidence that we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we ask of him. Did you guys hear this? Basically, he's saying, sweet Alicia, like if you pray anything according to my will, my answer is yes for you. But if you don't pray it, it may not happen. Sometimes I think he's waiting for me to ask him. And I'm not saying that God's going to say just because I pray for a trip to Hawaii next week that he's going to give it to me. But he's saying, if it lines up according to my word, and as you meditate on my word, as you learn my scripture, you will start having prayers that line up according to my will, and they will be effective prayers, and my answer for you will be yes. But here's the thing. Sometimes I don't always hear an answer from him. And so what does that mean? Does that mean he doesn't hear me? Does it mean it's not according to his will? Does it mean his answer is no? Well, let me just say this, sweet sisters. His answer is always something. And he is storing up our prayers in the golden bowls, for sure. But his answer may be, Alicia, not right now. Or maybe no. Maybe my answer is no for you. Maybe I will never take away the 24-7 twitching that you have in your muscles or the pain that Sue feels in her joints all the time or the burden that my sister carries every day with a a special needs child that is really hard and she never sleeps and praying, Lord, help him develop out of this. But you know what? His answer may be no. A two-year-old was playing with a a toy truck, and it broke. And the mom said, sweetie, it's okay, it's okay. Your great-aunt Bertha, she's got $10 million, and she is going to give it to you someday. And what do you think that little two-year-old did? (laughs) You know, like, did not even care. You see, the same thing for us. Sometimes we don't understand what God has planned. And we're that two-year-old with that broken truck. And we're saying, God, I don't, I don't get it. All I see is this truck in front of me that's broken. And God, you have this much bigger plan. And I have to trust you with that. And guess what? I am going to trust you with that because you laid down your life on this bronze altar for me. And your body was ripped to shreds because you wanted a relationship with me. 
and you loved me that much. You tore that veil so that you could hear my prayers and you could listen to my voice. And I illuminated and gave you my word so that you could have fellowship with me and I could hear you and you could hear me. Sweet sister, you can trust me. You see, God will always give us what we would ask for if we knew what he knows. God will always give us what we would ask for if we knew what he knows. You see, if I knew what God knows, and he said, no, Alicia, that will never go away for you. Your pain will never go away. That circumstance will never change. Guess what? I would ask for that if I knew what he knew. I would. I would ask for it. I would say, yes, please. And that's when we have to trust and have faith. And number three, effectual prayer is relational and not ritual. And this brings us back to the very beginning. God was asking his people and their offerings that they were giving and the sacrifices that they were giving that it become from the heart and not just an outward expression of all these routines that they were going to do. When we pray, we don't have to be like the pagans who repeated a word over and over again or, or throw out this mumbo-jumbo Christianese. I don't think God really cares. He wants your raw realness before him in prayer. It's like the heart of a child and the heart of a father. And I guarantee you, the heart of a father does not care about a child having the right words. He's more concerned about their heart. I uh, have some handouts for you guys when you leave on some different ways that uh, you can pray for your kiddos and the the team's going to be standing at the door to hand those out and, and pray for your, your spouse and then other ways to pray. So you can get those on the table if you would like. And then I also gave you some tips, practical tips for prayer. And we don't have time to go through all those. Um, but I did want to mention the first one because this is actually a command of God, Matthew 6, 6, to go away, to take that Sabbath time and find a place where it's just you and God. It's important that you do this. How many of y'all saw the movie War Room? Some of you? Okay. It was a fantastic movie about this lady named Miss Clara. And she knew what it meant to effectually pray and to pray fervently. And she prayed for this lady who had this marriage that was falling apart. And God intervened in her prayers. He heard her and said yes, and, and the marriage was redeemed and restored. I have a little video clip of her praying because I think it's so powerful and a great reminder of what God's wanting when he says, I want your heart. And I'm just going to let you watch this right now. done it again Lord you've done it again you are good and you are mighty and you are merciful and you keep taking care of me when I don't deserve it praise you Jesus you are Lord give me another one Lord Guide me to who you want me to help. Raise up more that will call upon your name. Raise up those that love you and seek you and trust you. Raise them up, Lord. Raise them up. Lord, we need a generation of believers who are not ashamed of the gospel. We need an army of believers, Lord, that 
hate to be lukewarm and will stand on your word above all else. Raise them up, Lord, raise them up. I pray for unity among those that love you. I pray that you open their eyes so that they can see your truth, Lord. I pray for your hand of protection and guidance. Raise up a generation, Lord, that will take light into this world, that will not compromise when under pressure, that will not cower, Lord, when others fall away. Raise them up, Lord, that they will proclaim that there is salvation in the name of Jesus Christ. Raise up warriors, Lord, who will fight on their knees, who will worship you with their whole hearts, Lord. Lord, call us to battle, that we may proclaim you King of kings and Lord of lords. I pray these things with all my heart. Raise them up, Lord, raise them up. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? Lord, Father in heaven, I am just humbled before you. And I just praise you, Lord. And I just give you all the glory, Lord, for what you do and what you are about to do through these women, Lord. I thank you, Lord, for the privilege, the highest privilege of our life to be able to come before your throne and that you hear us right this second and that you dwell within us. Lord, what a privilege, God. We are so thankful and we give you all the praise and the glory and the honor forever and ever. And we pray this in your holy name. Amen.